Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Welcome back, and thank you so much for listening. If you're from the area of the country that I come from, you hear a whole lot of folks talk about madmen trudging around in darkness killing folks. In fact, I heard so much about it growing up that I thought that somebody's got to have some kind of vapor lock in their thought process to continually think that there's monsters out there walking amongst us all that actually beat, strangle, stab, or shoot people to death and some didn't even have the gall to chop up the bodies and throw them all over the place like garbage. At least that's what I thought until I started looking into it. Shockingly enough, it turns out that the vapor lock and the thought process was on my part. So come on in, have yourself a seat, and let me tell you about one of the stories that helped change my mind about it all. Now, between the years of 1962 and 1964, southern West Virginia was hit by a series of gruesome murders done by a so-called madman. During that period of time, seven men wound up vanished into thin air. Seemed like the public took took it all just as a price of doing business until long about December 1962 when the first of the several dismembered remains turned up. That sent the whole area into a frenzy. Now, it all started when Ernest Gwynn, who was born in 1887 in Summers, West Virginia, you know, he was married to his wife Mary in 1912, and they went on to have two children. At the time he showed up missing, Ernest was a widower and was living in a room in the Virginian Motel in Main Street in Oak Hill. He had retired as a brakeman for the railroad and lived what was described as a pretty simple life. Now, Ernest was known to be a man of small stature and stood about 5'9 and weighed about 170 pounds. Now, on the evening of July 3rd, 1962, Ernest did what he always did around the first day of every month. He cashed his pension check, paid his rent for the month, and went over to the four-minute lunch where he liked to eat. Now, he made his rounds talking to about everybody in the place, down in several beers, as was normal, and then left to go home for the evening. Nobody could put an exact time on when he exactly he left, but he was seen by several witnesses talking to and, you know, a few friends as he passed them by the, on his way home. But nobody saw anything funny until he failed to show up to the diner the next morning. The owner of the diner, who happened to be Ernest's landlord as well as had scheduled a worker to 
go up into his apartment to do some painting and repairs and and that were needed and were waiting to tell Ernest at breakfast time that the man was going to be there that day to work on his room. The whole bunch, including the landlord, figured that Ernest must have gone out of town for Independence Day to visit his sons and thought it would be a nice surprise to find his room all nice and fixed up when he got back. But the problem was, Ernest Gwynn never came back. In fact, nobody knew if or when he even left. On July 6, 1962, his sons were notified that the father had pretty much disappeared. They were asked if they were had heard anything from him or they didn't have any contact with him either, so they didn't know what had happened, and that's when they called the West Virginia State Police and reported him missing. Uh, police worked the case, and they believed that Mr. Gwynn was probably the victim of a robbery gone wrong or something along those lines. There wasn't a hiding a hair to be found to Ernest Gwynn until May of 1963 when a skull with a bullet hole in it was found by railroad workers. It was believed to be Ernest Gwynn because of the time of death was about the same as Mr. Gwynn's disappearance. And his dentist had destroyed all of his dinner records, so they really didn't have a positive ID. But uh, then there was Sammy Smith, a migrant worker from Scarborough, West Virginia. Scarborough is how it's spelled, but uh, people just utter it like I just did because we're from the mountains. He had just been back from Oak Hill after working away for the season and he took a job as a dishwasher at Mr. Gwynn's favorite home, the four-minute lunch. Now, Sammy was also around 5'8", and on October 10, 1962, Sammy completed his shift at the four-minute lunch and at around midnight. And folks, I've washed dishes for a job back when I was a young fella, and there ain't nothing in the world like quitting time. Sammy must have hitched him a ride to the top hat drive-in because he was seen there by witnesses getting him a cup of coffee just after he got off. They figure he hitched the ride because and he was seen so soon after his shift ended that he couldn't have possibly walked there. And he was seen walking towards home just uh, after about 12.20. So after going several days with no Sammy, his mother called police and reported him missing. To this day, there's never been a shred of Sammy's Smith found anywhere, and he is still considered a missing person thereabouts. So far, the police really had nothing to tie the two together and honestly weren't alarmed to the possibility of a presence of anything out of the norm being going on right now. So, And uh, I guess I can't blame them. Most folks don't know that West Virginia State Police have long since been and most of the highly trained officers in the nation. And so it wasn't until December 1962 that the suspicions that there just might be a madman of some sort lurking around the mountains hunting people for sport came to be. Now the suspicions came with the murder of Mike Rogers. He was a 19-year-old mentally handicapped ward of the state. He lived on Salem Road with his foster parents, the Dillies, who had cared for him since he was three years old. Now Mike was 5'10 and about 215 pounds and was a, as docile as a kitten. Around 5 o'clock in the evening on December 19th, Mike told his foster mother that he was going to Salem Market to pick up some Lucky Strike cigarettes. He said that if the market was closed, he'd mosey on over to Oak Hill and get him some there. There were several witnesses that saw Mike on Main Street in Oak Hill around 6 o'clock. 
only he wasn't walking. He was riding in a passenger of a station wagon with Ohio tags. Now, that wasn't that uncommon, though Mike was known to hitchhike and everything, but again, uh, it was odd. The last confirmed sighting just happened to be around 6.30 of Mike when he approached one of his friends as he sat in his vehicle and asked for a ride home. The friend said that he looked like to be two things, in a hurry to get home and scared out of his mind. He told Mike that he had to make a stop right quick and he'd circle back in a few minutes and give him a ride home. Mike was gone by the time he got back. So the Dillies reported Mike missing to the state police and they worked the case for eight days. Then on December 27, 1962, a young boy would stumble on the dismembered remains of Mike Rogers while he was out looking for pop bottle caps in Gawley Mountain. I know you're wondering why on earth the boy would be looking for pop bottle caps, right? Now, back when I was a little fella, collecting bottle caps was something that was popular to do. It was kind of a poor man's version of stamp collecting, and we all did it. But anyway, the autopsy revealed the remains to have been chopped and chewed. The body was dismembered into 13 pieces with the head having been found inside a plastic bag. A military duffel bag was also found on the scene containing the left section of Mike's torso and rump. Now, several organs were also present, just thrown about the duffel bag. Mike's cause of death was determined to have been a gunshot wound to the head, which, according to the bullet's trajectory, was shot from behind. That's what now called execution style, I guess, and it was done while Mike was kneeling on the ground. The dismemberment was all done after he was killed. Now, that one got folks worked up. There still wasn't any type of a evidence found to tie them all together yet, and folks were just plain outraged that somebody could do that to somebody in the first place, and let alone have the possibility of getting by with it. Mike's murder was the one that made public go on edge. Now, you know how it happens. Gun sales go on the increase. Folks get glued to the news, which puts the police under the microscope and will sometimes slow down a killer or on rare occasions maybe stop him for a while. And that might be just what happened because it took till July 27, 1963 for anything else to happen. It was Lou Bennett was a 42-year-old coal mining operator and World War II veteran from right there in Oak Hill. On that evening, Lou left his house walking over to visit some friends around 5 p.m. He ended up at the four-minute lunch in Oak Hill, where, according to a witness, he drank him a few cold beers and chatted with some folks hanging out there at the counter. All the folks said that the conversation with Lou, well, it was dark and ominous, and even foreshadowed what was about to happen, maybe. Now, folks, it might not be too much that, or so much that Lou thought it, he saw it coming as the fact that he'd been diagnosed with some type of terminal kidney problem. I couldn't find out what kind of kidney problem it was, but since his diagnosis, Lou had been plagued with depression. He was said to have stated that he planned to simply disappear one day into a place where nobody would ever find him again. After he was done sipping and talking, Lou did what probably I'd do in a situation like that, or used to do in a situation like that, I should say. He grabbed him a six-pack of beer to go and left the four-minute lunch, and for the walk home. It ain't like he's going to hurt anything else at this point, I guess, anyway. 
He was seen by one of the locals walking down the railroad tracks toward his house with his beer tucked under his arm, which is the way you carry your beer in the Appalachian Mountains. Lou never showed up at the home, though, and his wife reported him missing the next day to West Virginia State Police. His whereabouts were unknown until May 19, 1965, when one of the group of children playing near some railroad tracks near Minden, West Virginia, literally tripped over his human skull. More remains were located down a ravine, as well as articles of clothing, including a unique belt with the letter B engraved on it. Investigators thought it looked a lot like he'd been blown up with a stick of dynamite. Nearest relatives of Lou Bennett confirmed the articles belonged to him, and it was finally confirmed that the remains were his. It was speculated through the years that Lou had decided it ended all after learning that he didn't have too long to live to start with. His family, well, just didn't believe that to be the case, so we're left with just those facts to go on. Was Mr. Bennett the next victim of the whack-a-doodle? Well, suicide could be a possibility you really got to look at in a situation like this. The whole passel of odd going through town to begin with in a town the size of Oak Hill at the time. It's apparently this whole passel of odd likes to eat at some place regularly called the four-minute lunch. The next disappearance occurred almost four months later to the day. November 1963, Shirley Jean Arthur of Mount Hope, West Virginia, decided that he was going to go AWOL from the Navy. He returned home to West Virginia to sort out some of the unspecified business issues. Yes, Shirley was a common name back in early Appalachia. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, Shirley was a very talented gospel singer and had aspirations of making it big in the music business someday. Now, he had brushed off the fact that a pack of MPs were going to soon be out breathing down his neck, looking to drag him back to the Navy brig and headed on over to Pineville there in West Virginia and to meet with his girlfriend to practice for an upcoming gospel concert that he was set to perform in. There two accounts of what exactly happened next. The first one was Shirley left the, to hitchhike back home after practice at about 11 o'clock. In the other account, he left closer to 1 o'clock in the morning. Whatever time it was, the last time somebody saw Shirley Arthur was about 2 o'clock in the morning in the small community of Sophia before he hit the road for home. His girlfriend had gave him a big yellow apple as a snack for the trip back home. Of course, we wouldn't be talking about it if Shirley made it home, would we? When he did show up, his family wasn't alarmed at all. Or when he didn't show up, his family wasn't alarmed at all. First, it wasn't out of character for him to take off and show up later at random occasions, so they didn't call it in and just kind of waited around for him to come back. But it was a gruesome discovery back in Pineville that caused his family to get concerned. In the woods down near Indian Creek, a torso of a man was discovered by some young boys out grabbing themselves a bit of firewood. It was found wrapped in a canvas tarp which included the torso along with the lower extremities of the body. What was most horrifying was missing the head and arms, hands, and feet of, of the body. And the similarities between the murder of Mike Rogers and the, this unknown body were just too close to ignore by this time. 
The madman of the mountains would now be referred to as the mad butcher of Fayette County, and it was all too clear that he had struck again. An autopsy revealed multiple stab wounds to the chest. Any of the one by itself was fatal, let alone all the rest of them. They had all been made with a blunt instrument like an ice pick or maybe a Phillips head screwdriver. The body had also been held in the freezer and was still thawing out at the time it was found. The lungs of the victim were clean. That meant that he wasn't a coal miner nor a smoker. Now, the contents of the stomach showed two cups of partially digested food, including the remains of, well, you guessed it, a yellow apple. Based on the estimated age, size, and the stomach contents, police figured it had to be Shirley Jean Arthur. There is one thing that might prove otherwise, which is Shirley Jean Arthur was known to be a chain smoker, and the lungs of the victim were clear. Either it was him, or maybe the lungs were from somebody else altogether. To this day, the torso's never been really properly identified, and is buried in the Wyoming County Cemetery near near the place it was found, and in with an inscription, Mr. X. On the same day that the torso was found along Indian Creek, somebody else vaporized from the face of the earth. Sergeant James Lee Haynes had hitchhiked down from Baltimore, Maryland, to visit family in Mabin after returning home from a tour overseas. He planned on hitching a ride back to Maryland with a family member, and but he never showed up. The family did what nobody else did and called the state police, when they, or everybody did what everybody else did and called the state police to tell them about Mr. Haynes disappearing and asked that an alert be sent out on TV and radio. A woman from Powelton responded right off the bat to state police to identify Mr. Haynes as the passenger she gave a ride to from Baltimore. According to her, she dropped him off at the intersection of Route 21 and State Route 61 in Oak Hill before going home. Somebody said they saw Mr. Haynes at the VFW Hall curling a few twelves. They said that he got into a small disagreement with three other men. According to the witnesses, or this witness, they took their debate outside, and that's where Mr. Haynes was hit by a car before being dragged up in the holler and buried in the mountains somewhere. None of this could be actually verified, but a search was conducted in several places, and several pieces of evidence were collected, including a wallet, dog tags, and bloody rags, but this family confirmed that these didn't belong to Mr. Haynes, which makes me wonder, whose were they then? <laughs> Are there more folks missing than we know about? But uh, the Army officially declared James Lee Haynes dead on May of 1965, and he was memorialized on May 31st, 1965, and his remains have truly never been found. And I'm still not done. Bob Agee was a native of Kingston who had been living and going to school in Chicago. In February 1962, he made a trip back to check on his mother, who was living in a nursing home and had got sick. After he visited with her a spell, he left, but he didn't go back home and hurry to where he was staying, and the family reckoned Bob had just maybe hitched a ride back to Chicago. Folks he was staying in Chicago figured, well, maybe his mother must have been worse off than he thought, and... He decided to stay home and didn't plan to go back to school after all. Then on July of 1964, reality come busting through the front door like it was trying to warn somebody about a tornado bearing down on the place or something. And the family called the 
state police and reported Bob missing. There wasn't a whole lot of, about Bob's appearance that could even be investigated by then. It's thought by most that Bob's disappearance, uh, that he was actually the first victim of the Mad Butcher because it occurred when it did. Then to beat it all in 1965, a relative of a co-worker of Bob's told somebody that he was alive and well in Chicago and the news went nuts with the story, which then proved to be false. Uh, fancy that. One man was considered a suspect in 1964. He was a man named Hugh Montgomery. Now, Hugh was arrested at a local hospital where he'd gone in the hospital demanding that they hire him as a doctor when they ran him off for acting like a whack-a-doodle. He left all right and then came back with a sledgehammer and started breaking stuff. Now, after the police pounced on and arrested him, they found three guns, a knife, a duffel bag, and a meat grinder in his car that looked like it doubled as his home. Now, he had gone to medical school for a year and was in the Air Force as a physician. Now, having been in the military myself and having been under the care of their doctors, I found that just a little bit disturbing. But... He went on to admit to several murders, but made a point that it wasn't, he wasn't a mad butcher of Fayette County. He said people were after him, and he had only killed the people he'd killed in self-defense. Of course, murderers tend to sometimes lie, so police didn't believe him. They done some checking and found out that he was in Ohio at the Air, Air Force Base at the time of the murder of Mike Rogers. The man was from Fayette County and was, was from the a wealthy family, actually. When he was arrested and sent to the hospital to be examined, it was reported that he was diagnosed as being paranoid, homicidal with a homosexual tendencies. They always got to stick that on there, don't they? But which seems to be a general description given by violent criminals then, you know. But it was found that he'd been bounced around the mental hospital for quite a few years, and it just so happened that the five torso murders happened in the area he was in. Was he the murderer? Well, nobody truly knows, although many believe he was, because after his arrest, the killing stopped. Or so they said. In 1970, two co-ed students were abducted and later found dead just outside Morgantown. Both had been decapitated and their heads were never found. This makes me wonder if the mad butcher of Fayette County didn't just move on to another place and start hacking folks up again. But Hugh Montgomery, well, the only thing I could find is that he was in and out of mental institutions for many years, and I couldn't find any charges ever made against him in the Mad Butcher case or anything else. And then he eventually died in Dayton, Ohio at the age of 69 in 1997. James Haynes' mother never believed he was dead and stood by her door many nights waiting for him to come home. Other family members waited in vain for justice that just never came, folks. That, folks, to this day is where the case stands. Nobody truly knows if all the victims or were victims of the Mad Butcher, but it sure sent a shockwave through Beckley area of West Virginia back in the day. I hope you enjoyed the story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please, on whatever media you're listening on. Join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, and make a few comments. Everybody's welcome. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I will see you then.